Welcome to Trust Company Talks with Bill Noble and Burke Coons. Good morning, and welcome to Trust Company Talks with Bill Noble and Burke Coons. Bill, how are you today? I'm doing great, Burke. How are you this I'm morning? I'm doing great. Never better. We are joined today by a special guest from one of our longstanding investment partners, Mr. Edward Saracino of Vanguard. Ed is a senior portfolio specialist with Vanguard Financial Advisor Services, where he consults with advisors on thought leadership and Vanguard's full range of investment solutions. Welcome, Ed. How are you? Welcome, Burke. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. Of course. So, Wilkes University, mm-hmm. t- tell us, so go Colonels. Absolutely, yeah. So I grew up in the northeastern part of Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. I was born and raised there. My mother was actually the athletic director at the university too. So it was pretty. It was ingrained pretty early in my life where my future direction was going to be when I went to school. Really proud to go to school there. It was a great experience. That's cool. And so, and and so you've been with Vanguard for how long now? This is a long, long time. A little bit more than twenty years Mm -hmm. at this point. So I was born and raised in Pennsylvania. Vanguard being a Pennsylvania company, I, I read all of Mr. Bogle's books when I was growing up and figured really early in my life, this is where I wanted to work. Well, that's outstanding. It's a great firm and a great partner for us. And we're excited. That, you know, I, I loved reading that you deal in thought leadership in your vibe because that means that they must think that there's some thought leadership going on here, which is <laughs> extraordinary and humbling. And, and uh, we'll see how that goes today. But anyhow, thank you for being here. Of course. So tell us a little bit more about your, your role within Vanguard. I know I read the little intro, but you can tell us a little more in depth about you know what you're doing. Yeah. So I work in what's called our financial advisory services business. So this is going to be a dedicated business supporting large firms like yourself. You know, Vanguard Financial Advisory Services, when people think about Vanguard, they think about you know the Vanguard brand and indexing and everything that Mr. Bogle set up. But it's our largest division at Vanguard now. It's $3 trillion in assets under management. And, you know, as we want to have a a firmer stance within this division, we want to better amplify the service offer. So about five years ago, I I came over to the division to do this type of role. And that's going to be bring Vanguard's thought leadership across a collection of different disciplines directly to our financial advisory clients like yourself and your underlying clients too. So when you think about that and who I, I sit next to within the organization, we communicate directly with our economists or investment strategists. I spend a lot of time with our fixed income portfolio managers too. We also have a large sub-advisory equity offer as well. So we partner with firms like Wellington Management Company and Bailey Gifford and get to hear directly from those individuals. We have an in-house research team within our advisory services too and get to collaborate with them and also sit closely with our portfolio construction experts. So I get to glean those insights across a wide range of disciplines. And this is a fun role. I get to communicate Vanguard's best thinking to our clients across all those disciplines. Excellent. So you're, you're in pretty close contact with the, the economist role, with some of the you know, more senior investment leadership roles. Yeah, yeah. So I get to hear from them directly on what we're thinking across a variety of different macro factors. And then what's really interesting about it too, Burke, is that you get to juxtapose that with how the fixed income portfolio managers are thinking. So you have the broad macro theoretical type discipline, and then you have the practical application of it too, living in the real world, managing real money, and having to allocate capital. So you get to have all these various different perspectives. That's right. And they always say the bond guys are smarter. So you have to, you have to kind of figure out, you know, who's like, dissecting durations is, is like splitting atoms. Yeah. 
<laughs> I will say, I'll say this, that fixed income professionals tend to be a little bit more paranoid because that's what you're hiring them to do, right? When you think right. about their, their asset class, they're looking for stability, looking for income. And that's, that's what, so they, that's just a different way of thinking. And then you juxtapose that with like a growth manager. You know, they right. sometimes tend to be a little bit more optimistic about things mm-hmm. too. And it's, it's fascinating to get those perspectives from all these various different professionals. So Ed, one thing I wanted to ask you and, and especially for our, our listening audience is talk about, if you will, how, how you interact with us and how we utilize you as a, as a resource and a tool to help us create the asset allocations that we do for our clients. Yeah, it could be across a, a lot of different things. And it's funny because I, I think about just how things have evolved quite a bit over the last five to 10 years. Like it wasn't that long ago where, you know, what we would do is we would have like a symposium where I would stand behind a podium and I would walk through slides and we would talk about things. And just being in this studio with you now just tells you just the evolution of how how we just communicate with each other differently. But when you think about like my discipline and how we can partner together, it could be across a variety of different things. More than Vanguard's broader thoughts about what's happening in the economy, we can walk through any investments that you have with us to ensure that you're comfortable with them and answer any questions. We can also look at your portfolios too and run it through our analytics system to determine, you know, if there's any risk reward opportunities or anything that you want to, from an analytical standpoint, there's a lot of various different offers we can provide you. It's been great to have you, know, you guys as a resource for you know for stuff like that, or even just for you know, you're looking for white paper research on a given topic. I mean, it's been it's it's great to have a firm like y'all behind us, but and it's great to have you know so many there's such depth of resource there. So I wanted to I wanted to turn to you know some of what some of those resources are. You, you sit close to the the uh, sort of the, the macro folks over there. I'd be curious, kind of what what you guys are. Seeing what your you know what your crystal ball is saying about the broad macro environment that we're currently in. Yeah, as we sit here in the end of August, two thousand twenty-three, uh, two thousand twenty-three. Right. You know, the it, it has evolved quite a bit. So, you know, our base case right now from from the economics team is that you know recession is probably going to be pushed out until next year, which is a good thing, mm-hmm. right? If we do have one for that matter, right. too, that's obviously not a not a guarantee either. But consumption's been really strong. Unemployment remains considerably low. All good things for the overall economy. And the Fed has had a pretty aggressive tightening cycle up to this point. So as we record this, it's you know somewhere between five and a quarter and five and a half percent. There's still three more Fed meetings before the end of the year. You know there is a, a probability that they still might need to hike a little bit more from this point forward. Mm-hmm. So our economics team has extended that range even a little bit of what we could possibly see before the end of the year between five and a half and six on the target federal fund rate. And, you know, the reason, the rationale here is when you think about the Fed, they have a dual mandate, full employment and, you know, a, a target inflation of roughly about 2%. And that dual mandate is not in conflict right now. We certainly have full employment, mm-hmm. but inflation still remains sticky. And, you know, the way that our team thinks about it is that they, that the Fed does want to knock inflation out of the system to make sure that it doesn't get embedded into the overall economy. So while things aren't in conflict right now, we're going to have, you know, the tightening cycle is going to be here. But I, I think that the one thing that we're most convicted about at this point is going to be what we'll call higher for longer. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's different ways to be able to 
tighten things. You know, there's whatever the terminal rate ends up being on the target federal fund rate is one thing, but it's going to be the amount of time that you stay there. And if I think about just the beginning of the year, especially right before or right after when Silicon Valley Bank failed, the market was pricing in pretty aggressive Fed cuts. Yep. And, you know, our economics team didn't see it that way. You know, and, and up to this point, you know, you can see the market evolving back to Vanguard's broader view. So, you know, we are fairly convicted that they're going to keep rates elevated for an extended period of time. And then everything's going to depend on how the economy and inflation evolve through the course at end of this year and next year. It's really difficult, obviously, to be able to forecast, but we do feel strongly about higher for longer. Yeah. I think you've, I think that's a great point. And the, the, the curve, at least the last time I looked, which is maybe, Friday was it? They're not pricing in any additional hikes. It's just, and in fact, they should be cutting by next spring or summer. But that yeah. doesn't mean. But that's it's a dynamic curve, obviously, and and the fact that they were pricing in cuts for this fall a few months ago mm-hmm. it speaks to what you're saying that we're, we're probably in, we may not see a lot more hikes, but we're but we could be looking at a much longer period of elevated or at least maybe normal interest rates. Yeah, that's what I would expect, at least for the, you know, for the next, for the foreseeable future was we would certainly agree with that. And I think the big point here too, Burke, is that this is a good thing for your clients as well. I know the tightening cycle last year was very painful. Nobody likes seeing price depreciation in their investments. That had to happen. You know, we had unexpected inflation. The Fed responded to that. And because of that, the market needs to reprice things. Mm-hmm. And last year was the worst fixed income year on record mm-hmm. going we we can go back to 1928 i can show you a distribution this is an outlier all the way to the left and the reason for that is twofold one is going to be not, not just the unexpected inflation but how the fed responded to that the you know 500 basis points of hiking in a very short period of time but what compounded this and what made this work or worse, excuse me, for, for your clients is the fact that we had no zero, we had 0% cushion when it comes to income. Mm-hmm. You know, the Fed cut rates aggressively to be able to provide liquidity during the COVID crisis. So as they raised rates aggressively, there was no income cushion. That's different now. So like mm-hmm. rates can still move up a little bit more from here. But when you look at the yield cushion that you're getting, it'll absorb, you know, a lot of any, a lot of, price depreciation from this point forward. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a great point. You know, it, we, we try to point out to our clients, particularly endowment clients or clients that are closer to retirement, that, that this is a good thing in the sense that your fixed income portfolio is going to be generating more fixed income. Um, mm-hmm. But that's, that's a, that, nobody likes to talk about that when they're, you know, down close to 20% and they're in what's supposed to be their ballast, you know, yeah. supposed to be their, 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 their safety zone. And so right. that was some unpleasant conversations <laughs> last year, particularly with the, with, you know, the, the endowment set. Well, it's probably been the most unique era for fixed income. I can never remember in my career. That's for sure. Last, last couple of years. I mean, Yeah. And as we as we're like we're talking about getting now we're now we're approaching a point where I know we have a lot of folks that are in that are still seeking the safety of treasuries, but you know we've been we've been advocating for folks to consider you know a bond fund instead of a treasury, given that you know you have lower reinvestment risk mm-hmm. uh, going forward. I mean, what do you is that what you guys are advocating something similar or? Yeah, we're seeing a lot of capital move to the very short end of the curve mm-hmm. in the T-bill space. Yeah. And 
I think to the point that you, you just made, a lot of that is a byproduct of just the amount of pain that was experienced last year. And that oftentimes investors like certain outcomes, right? And this is a certain outcome with a yield that they haven't been able to achieve since the global financial crisis. So 15 years. So I've been working at Vanguard a little bit more than 20 years. A significant majority of that was in this very low interest rate environment and incredibly accommodative Fed monetary policy. But I have to just recall what it was like before that when you can actually make, you know, five, six percent on a T-bill. So I think a lot of that money is sitting there because of A, the pain last year, B, the certainty, and C, it, it just helps people sleep better at night. And, oh, yeah. you know, we do a lot of things in life to sleep good at night. And if this is going to bring, this is going to enable that I could, I could understand it, but you asked me more of a technical question to Berg and like, ultimately what our best thinking would be if the goal of the investment is to provide diversification to equities, you're going to want to be in more of a traditional fixed income portfolio. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that, and I say this recognizing this didn't happen in 2022, but in 2022, the stressors for equity markets and fixed income was unexpected inflation. As we evolve and the economy evolves, if the if the stressor to markets is going to be, you know, a potential recession because of Fed hiking, you're going to want that diversification benefit because stocks are going to be ultimately what enables people to be able to retire or to be able to accumulate assets for right. retirement, right? Stocks are going to be that driver that they're the ones that are there. The, the asset, asset class is going right. to be what right. drives the return above inflation over extended period of time and give you that growth. But on the fixed income side of things, it'll provide you diversification. Mm -hmm. So if we do, you know, at some point, and you never know when this stuff can happen, you know, if we, if the economy does slow down or maybe hit something, and stocks reprice, you know, having high grade fixed income will provide you really good diversification benefits in that in that environment. Right. Bill, do you have anything you want to add at the moment or no, I was just I was just thinking about as he was as as you were speaking, I was thinking more about the relationship philosophically we have with Vanguard mm -hmm. and over we are an independent investment advisor and wealth management firm and trust company mm -hmm. and the main tenets of what your company, you know, John Bogle's one, I've read all of his books also. And he was, he was my introduction to investing when I was a young person coming out of college. And there's so many tenets, core tenets that Vanguard adheres to that are so similar to us. That's why I thought it made a lot of sense for you guys to be a, a part of our offering of what we do for our clients and you know the the, the fixed the fixed income issue right now and we're always going to have different changing issues the thing that kind of resonates in my head is what is it that still drives helps a person to be a successful investor and it goes back to certain kind of core values and core tenets and disciplines that you have to adhere to. And that's what we at Trust Company try to instill in our clients and try to help them maintain more importantly. It's easy to be bold and, and very sure of yourself when markets are good, but our value is getting the, the best advice we can from people like yourselves and then help make sure people 
stay the course, as John Bogle used to say, right. with the plan. Right. And also that, you know, I mean, expenses are one of the few things that you can control. Yeah, and exactly. So you might have, it's, you know, that's certainly exactly. an attractive part of the value proposition. Yeah. Of course. Can I respond then to what Bill was saying yeah. too? It's what, it's interesting because I, I, I love consuming market information. I do it daily. I find it fascinating. I find this environment fascinating too. And I learn a lot every single day. It's an education and it's, but when I think about ultimately, I don't do anything with the information other than educate myself and just figure out what's driving markets and what's driving the economy. But ultimately for clients, like the biggest advantage here, and you already said it like expenses, like we know this at this point, Mr. Bogle has educated all of society on this matter that, you know, like you got to keep expenses low and then to, to be able to have long-term investment success. But the other things that Vanguard talks about, which are really important, which I know you do as well, and that's going to have a long-term view, right? The market's going to make a ton of noise in a very short period of time. You can ask me our opinion about a lot of things and I'm more than happy to answer it, but like, it's really important to have a long-term view with all of this stuff as well. And just recognize that, Ultimately, investing is having discipline and having goals and sticking towards those goals every single day. And that that's what leads to a success. Yeah, totally agree. As does our firm. And, and part of that, part, part of having that long-term perspective, you know, sort of, you know, lends itself to the diversification conversation, right? Because, you know, you're trying to, you know, the, if the market skews positive over the long term, you know, you're trying to limit non-systemic risks and, and mistakes and, you know, and having, you know, having a diversified portfolio to talk a little bit about, about, you know, that, that subject, if you will, and, and, mm-hmm. and, you know, fund versus individual securities. You know, we have, there are lots of folks that come to us with, with, with concentrated portfolios, but then in, in particular, I guess there are two parts of this, but first is like just diversification versus individual stocks. But then what I want to talk about in addition to that was, was a, a, a bond fund versus individual bonds. You know, there's some, clients that just they just want like we're talking about treasuries they they just want to be able to say yes i own this muni or i own this issue of this local hospital you talk about the advantages and disadvantages of of a of a fund approach versus you know being able to to have a laddered individual bond portfolio so i know that's a lot sorry no 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 maybe i'll start with just the fixed income individual fixed income securities versus a package solution like a fund or etf there's a pro con list everything Right. So there's no, no free lunch. We were, Mr. Bogle used to say that all the time. There's no free lunch in investing. So there's a pro con list and you make trade offs. So on the individual security side, the pros of it, there's twofold. One is going to be you have complete control, right? When you out, when you invest in a Vanguard fund, we do have discretion in what securities we're going to invest. And obviously there's going to be strategy expectations and you hold us accountable for meeting them, but we're going to make this selection. You'll have complete control in what you own. You'll be able to see with what you own. And the other important part of it, too, is there's this perception of certainty. I get principal back at the end. That's a ladder of individual securities. A ladder just means that you just take different maturities mm-hmm. and you just you move them on out. When you think about a mutual fund, it's the same thing. It's just a ladder of securities, but you have professional management that's you know doing credit research. You have professional management that's trying to find the best value on the yield curve. You have professional trading that's going to be able to execute it at the right price. It's still a ladder of individual securities. So if a client had an individual ladder – the price goes up and down just like the mutual fund does, mm-hmm. but the mutual fund 
is in your face because it's a regulated instrument with what's called an NAV, a net asset mm -hmm. value, because people are buying and selling on a daily basis and it's available. And then there's a total return calculation that's done after that, right? So that, that just hits you. The individual ladder is the same thing. It's just not what's called mark to market on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. But the difference here between the two is going to be if you had to sell one of those individual securities, it's going to be at the same price that if it was held in another account. But the other thing is you wouldn't get the same execution and the same liquidity too. Mm -hmm. So when I think about, I'll give you the pro con list, just kind of summarize things real quick. The pros control and the perception of we call it the principle at maturity myth. The pros of having a package solution is going to be diversification, mm -hmm. right? You're going to get exposure up and down the curve. You're going to have, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of different issuers within that portfolio. And if you end up choosing an actively managed fund as well, and we'll use munis as an example in this regard, you have professional management that's going to be able to tease out, you know, what credits to buy. And where on the yield curve to be able to purchase those. And then ultimately, the chance for what I'll refer to as enhanced performance or outperformance is going to be because you have professional management and because you have that diversification, they can buy maybe some what I'll call intermediate tier credits that are maybe single A or triple B that yield a little bit more. You diversify that out, you can get even higher yield. So. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, we feel pretty confident that if you went into a low-cost package solution, you'll have better performance. However, if you go to individual securities, you'll have more control. Right, right. Now, I think it's – like you said, the pros and cons, you know, certain folks – want to have ultimate control and want to have that ultimate trans transparency. But the, I think that the, the evidence certainly suggests that you, know, you can get better outcomes or you know, quality outcomes by having, you know, diversifying away, you know, all the non-systemic stuff. It's not free, right? right? You're, there's a, there's a premium for control. So if that's right. what you want, just recognize you're paying for it. Right. And if if you if you would if we could talk about the the equity kind of I guess it's, it's really the same thing on the equity side just you know you're just we're just not focused on you know the bond math it's just yeah with with that I mean you can just look at the beginning part of this year if you didn't own the top seven socks you underperformed right right if you own something like the S and P five hundred if you own the S and P five hundred you owned everything and right, and, right? So, so that's really it it's it's just the diversification of that and. Ultimately, you know, selecting individual securities could be a challenge at times. And mm -hmm. we're not, Vanguard has plenty of investments where if you, if, if you choose, you can come to Vanguard and we'll, you know, variety of different mutual funds where we're going to try to outperform the market. We believe in that too. If you have a talented management team and you do it at a very reasonable cost, mm -hmm. you know, there is the chance for outperformance, but just recognize there's going to be times where you underperform the market. Mm -hmm. And when the largest companies continue to outperform, that's going to be one of those. And that was the beginning part of this year. Right. Right. Yeah, that's one thing that's always been intriguing me with a lot of people think of Vanguard as purely a, an indexing firm, but you guys have multiple actively managed funds and how many funds total do y'all have now is it over last time i looked four what, what's the what's the number right now oh i, yeah, I mean I'm it's not always to, evolving yeah it's i'll say i'm gonna be safe by saying way over 100 yeah, yeah. because it's I was thinking a, it was over 400 
Is that is that well? Even... Somebody will fact check this at the yeah. end of this, right? It's right. Probably, yeah. I guess it's probably going to be somewhere in between okay. those two. So, yeah. But I think the the most important part of that is that we do believe in active, and we have a lot of ETFs, and those are going to be passively managed, and that's to be able to provide clients with ex- very efficient exposure to that market. But we we do a lot with active too. Our you know we, we have a really talented active fixed income team that especially in this type of environment, I think will provide a lot of value to clients. And then when you think about Vanguard and how Vanguard started, you know, Vanguard was created out of Wellington management company. Mm-hmm. So Mr. Bogle, you know, started the firm. He was the CEO of Wellington. And then ultimately what ended up happening is, you know, Vanguard became the distribution arm for Wellington's portfolio of mutual funds. And we were an active shop from the beginning until we introduced the first index fund in the mid to late 70s. And it took a while, a long time before that started getting serious traction. The, the challenge we've had with, with being successful with active is, is that our, you know, because we have a lot of endowment clients and a lot of, you know, super long-term clients in focus, is it you know, the, the, the longer you're in the market, you know, the, the more likely you are to experience a, a market return, which is a good thing. But if you have uh, you know, a lot of, you know, so call it tracking error or, you know, it's, it's just harder and harder for an active manager to maintain, you know, his or her advantage, you know, the longer you, the longer your horizon is. So our, our experience has been that, you know, it kind of depends on what your, your horizon is. If you have a particular view over a particular time period, you know, you might be a candidate for active management, but we've, we've, we have at least gravitated towards, you know, trying to drive down costs and, and with the, with the, the horizon that we have, you know, we've had better, we've had better luck with, with, you know, with, with, it's still active, but it, it, it looks a lot more like passive. It's really just kind of factored, but it's, but because the horizon is so long, it's just harder for managers to, and it's not because managers aren't good. It's because they are good. You know, I mean, you, they compete away each, each other's advantages, you know, in the fullness of time. And so, so, but we've, we've our, our success has come from, you know, having this super long horizon and, and, you know, trying to pick out the factors that make the most sense. And, you know, y'all been great with that. Well, I, I think what I, I would also put in there that we, we believe in, in broad diversification globally yeah, and, sure. you know, not just, not just in the United States and, and we adhere to low costs. I mean, our portfolios are going to have usually at least 12 to 14 different asset classes. So there's a, Broad diversification amongst different managers, Vanguard being one of them, but we use other managers also. So, Bill, you touched on. I was, I, I, it's like you're a mind reader. No, well, you're right. <laughs> no, I want. I want. To, I want to touch on international. Yeah. You know, because that that is a place where we we tend to allocate more internationally than a lot of our peers. And you know, t- maybe talk a little about the case for international in this in this environment. Sure. So, it's something that. We've been discussing more just because the U.S. has outperformed non-U.S. significantly. Well, significantly might be a strong word, but fairly consistently for a little while now when you look. Not last year, but, you know, plenty of years in a row. And we just like to remind investors that diversification matters, right? We're not saying have 100% in non-U.S. We're not – but you should have some level of – of non-U.S. exposure. So, and it really, like we lead with the diversification benefits because you don't know for sure what's going to outperform 
you know, in, in the future, it's really difficult to be able to predict. So we would just say anywhere between 20 to 40% in non-US is the, is the way, is going to be the sweet spot to be able to temper the volatility of, of your overall portfolio. Mm -hmm. So we would, when I work with financial advisory clients and they don't have 20%, just try to nudge them to that point. Vanguard's recommendation would be as high as, you know, 40%. Too. But any like anywhere in between would certainly be appropriate. And then ultimately, you know, we do have an investment strategy group too that that runs capital market expectations and mm-hmm. they look at things over the next decade. And they do see the probability of international outperforming the US over the next decade for a few factors. One is going to be a little bit of just regression on valuations. Right. That's not a lot. It's of so it. inexpensive versus the U.S. at this point. That that's a part of it. Right. So regressions right. on that for sure. When they look at their models, though, they actually re- they they attribute to the fact that earnings growth will be less outside of the United States too. That's that's part of the decomposition of of the returns that they're looking at. But there's two other things that you know that, that they see for the reason that international could potentially outperform. U.S. and that first is going to be just the currency impact. Mm-hmm. You know, the dollar's been really strong mm-hmm. up to this mm-hmm. point, and you know there could be a regression there, and that would contribute to non-U.S. performance. And then the final thing, which is probably the most basic, and I admit to it, just that one of the things that I f- lose track of, and lose track's not the right way of saying it, but just oh, some uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Overlook, just or, overlook right. the dividend yield. The mm-hmm. dividend yield outside of the United States, which is a very meaningful part of total return, is a lot higher. It, I believe it's somewhere between, you know, one three, one four mm-hmm. percent outside of the United States. Right. So when you combine those three together, a little bit of regression on valuations, dividend yield, and, and regression on currency, you know, they do see the probability of non-U.S. outperforming the U.S. over the next decade. Right. Well, it's it's interesting to me that I mean when you when you when you get beneath the numbers and you think, well, what is, what's been driving the U S performance? You have the dollar, obviously, but then you have, you know, growth has just been on such a great run mm-hmm. for so long. And, you know, and so much of the tech and so much of the outperformance is in the U S you know, and when you, when you go overseas, you're, you tend to be looking at, you know, more commodities driven industries and, and companies. And so you have, you, so it, it's not like, it's just randomized and companies in the U S are doing better and the rest of the world has not kept up, but it's, it's that the innovation and, and, and all the, you know, all, all the voting in the market has been for, you know, tech. And, and so as a result, the U S has done better, but perhaps is that, as you know, the bloom comes off that rose a little bit and your, your valuation story is so much more compelling internationally. And it's a reason to be there. This is why watching markets over very short periods of t- short periods of time is fascinating. Because mm-hmm. when you look at the performance in the U.S. this year, it's all driven by multiple expansion on right on the hopes. On seven companies of seven seven companies really. Right. It may be true. It may not be true. But that's the market is a collection of everybody's best thinking, and that's mm-hmm. what they're thinking right now. Mm-hmm. It's difficult to be able to predict what. You can't trade on this stuff. You can't trade on what's going to happen over a very short period of time. But that's what's driving it. It's, right. it's certainly going to be the performance of U.S. stocks this year is is multiple expansion at right. this point. Well, and I'm not calling for a big you know market downturn necessarily, but yeah. it's, but I, I am old enough to remember you know the dot com era and and you know multiples on Cisco and JDS Uniphase and all the all the fantastic you know backbone stocks of the internet you know, 23 years ago, and, and now they just have different names, you know, and, and, and Cisco, you know, has, I think the, 
annualized return on that has been about 1% since since 2000. So it's, well, another thing, too, I, I'd like to point out is, or, or at least suggest to the, to the forum, this esteemed group of <laughs> minds here, is people have – I've been in this business a long time, and people have such short memories, at least, our, you know, just – whether they're clients, whether they're at a cocktail party, or, what, or anybody who invests, and I was in, a, I was listening to a discussion the other night about one from one gentleman who said he was just he would never invest in anything but the S and P five hundred ever. And I said, well, I said, do you know what the return was for between two thousand and two thousand ten? And he said, oh, it's probably. Seven, eight percent, something like that. I said, no, it actually lost money. Mm-hmm. It's basically for, flat for for right. ten years. So every dog has its day. Every asset class has its day at some point, and we never really know when it's going to happen. And so it's that's why we diversify. And the other thing is, our clients, in most cases, already have their wealth. So our job is to help protect it, right, and grow it. So through that diversification, low cost diversification, through people like. You guys, it helps us achieve our objective. Sometimes small caps outperform. Yeah, yeah, they do. <laughs> Sometimes non-U.S. stocks outperform. They do. It's I've. It certainly happens. It's funny as you were saying that, Bill. Remind me of a story. There's a point in my career. It was after the global financial crisis where I did a lot of consulting with 401k plans, and <laughs> that time the U.S. was. You know, U.S. stocks were, were hurt pretty hard. And it was a time where U.S. stocks started underperforming. And the the theme of the time was what's called the BRICS, Brazil, Russia, mm-hmm. India, yeah. China. Their economic growth is you know substantially higher than the U.S. And all the 401k plans that I was consulting with wanted to have an emerging market stock fund. Mm-hmm. Now, say that right now, what are we, 10, 12 years later, people are saying emerging markets aren't investable. This mm-hmm. stuff moves. It moves in cycles. And we're going to yeah. be back there again yep. at some point in the future, too. When I started my career, we just you know came out of the tech bubble. And then that popped. And nobody wanted to own large cap growth. That's what we want to own right yeah. now. So I don't know. I don't know what's yeah. next. Yeah. You know, two years ago, people didn't want to own you know, fixed income because of just the very little, little income on securities. Now people can't get enough of T bills at five and a half percent. That's going to move again at some point in the future. We just don't know what exactly is going to be next, but it's going to be something. Right. And back to your point about the, the magnificent seven. I mean, if you go back 10 years, it was a, it was a different, it was a different seven. And I mean, there's always going to be concentration at the top, but you know, this is an, uh, sort of an unusual situation of it or an unusual amount of concentration at the moment but but you know the leadership changes it rolls over and they'll we'll be talking about you know the they'll be talking about this like the nifty 50 was once talked about at some yeah. point but but mom um, i know we're, we're getting up on our allocated time but, but speaking of allocation i wanted to go back to the 60 40 discussion a little bit what we we're talking about earlier it was it's been the bedrock allocation of a lot of endowments and 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 non endowments for for years and then after last year's debacle you know the, the I guess the, the worst year since '08 and the second worst since '76 or '74 whatever it was and, and really the first year that that you know fixed income you know was 
was not a not a contributor to the but to the performance, but in you know it subtracted from performance. It, I mean, it 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 took a bad equity year and made it worse in the in the sixty forty you know category. What has traditionally been a risk mitigator right. was a was a risk enhancer. Exactly, and, <laughs> and so everybody and so everybody there's a lot of you know cyber ink spilled at the end of the year about sixty forty being dead. You know. Our instinct, of course, is to say, "Well, it's probably not dead." But you know, talk, talk about what you're seeing, and and you know, as folks, you know, rethink yeah. their allocations, or, or are they? Well, we don't think the sixty forty is dead. I think the perception of it has been wounded, mm-hmm. and that'll go away in time as well. And the reason for that too is like when you just look at just the over the last we can look at data almost 100 years we can go back to 1928 it is by far you know one of the worst observations that we've seen and again it's it's going to be what we discussed a little bit earlier it's going to be you know we abruptly shut down economies because of covid we flush the system with cash monetary and fiscal we abruptly re- i don't know if we abruptly but economies reopened and then Unexpected inflation happened, and the Fed responded to that. You know, the Fed raised interest rates pretty aggressively, and equity markets had to reprice just this new inflation regime. And it all happened over a very short period of time. That's you know, and, and then ultimately you see that in in calendar year returns. And the sixty forty did not have a great year in twenty twenty two. Now people can be opportunistic on that, right, and sell against it and say the sixty forty is dead. I look at just the last 95 years of being able to calculate the 60-40 portfolio. It's positive almost 80% of those underlying observations. And we do believe I, – I know it's I know it's boring, right? It doesn't, it's not the sexiest thing in the world, but I, I do know that it works. And, and we're seeing a lot of clients now consider alternative investments too. Mm-hmm. And, and that that completely valid. And if you can find alternative investments that make sense to, to, to complement stocks and bonds, certainly. Mm-hmm. But there's there's theory and then there's implementation. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, there's a lot of things work in theory until you actually have to do stuff and actually make this work. And you know, what with 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 alternative investments, we do believe that they have merit, but it's it, it get it could become a challenge, and you're mm-hmm. going to need partners like yourself to be able to find the right managers. So, you know, in in my world, when I deal with or when I work with financial advisory clients, more often than not, they look at liquid alts, mm-hmm. right? They're mm-hmm. where I know when when you partner with your firms, you're you're not necessarily using liquid. Mm-hmm. Liquid is going to be just something that has a ticker right. symbol, and it's something that I can easily track and analyze too. And when I look at that and how advisors use them, when people come to us and they give us their portfolio and they ask for analytics help, we see a little bit less than 10% of those clients utilizing liquid alts. Mm-hmm. And it's typically in things like commodities or like certain types of like call option writing mm-hmm. on them as well. There's, there's a few of what I'll call multi-strategy liquid investments too. And then what I find is a, you have to be able to find the right manager. Well, you have to identify the right category. Right. Then you got to find the right manager, and you have to make sure that you, you do it at the right cost. Mm-hmm. So when I say find the right category, so within the liquid alt space, 12 of the 14 categories that you can buy, we find has underperformed the 60-40 portfolio over the last 10 years. Hmm. That's including last year's you're on record too. Wow. So 12 of the 14. And then when you look underneath the hood, 
a majority of those managers underperform the 60-40 portfolio too. So you have to find the right category, then you got to find the right manager. And when you look at the expenses of these two, it's really expensive mm -hmm. to be able to implement this. So we looked at just the range of expenses on these. And I looked at, or my team, my, my colleagues that I work with, I didn't do any of the work. They did all the mm -hmm. research on this. The 25th percentile of expenses on the lowest end was in the mid 50s. The 75th percentile was over 100 basis points. On the liquid alts? On the liquid alts side, wow. yeah. And what we found, too, is a majority of those funds were high, highly correlated to equities mm. than, than traditional sort of fixed income, too. Right. Yeah, so right. I guess I, I, that's, very, that's a lot of data, right. and it's a lot of, well, we, we want to do the work and understand things. Mm. It's a very long-winded way of saying that things sound great in theory, but then you actually have to go ahead and implement it, and that's where things become more challenging. Well, and I know we don't have but so much time, Bert, but I was sitting here thinking about how our firms evolved over the years and the way we create our portfolios for our clients. And we've certainly enjoyed our relationship with Vanguard since we, we've we utilized them a lot, on a lot of different levels. But y'all's research has been great. I mean, the thing yeah, we really true. try to do is be that, be that objective fiduciary for our clients and – Try to get the the best of brand, best of best of mind, best of thought players out there, and you guys are certainly one of them. The the, the information y'all provide us has been yeah. Now I'll give you a shout out on awesome that. The, the for our investment committee because that helps us create our portfolios. Ed, it's been a pleasure. We appreciate you guys coming out. Oh, thank you. Thanks appreciate, so much. Appreciate the time. Thanks for the hospitality. Yes, sir. Bill, till next time. Yeah, till next time. Thank you, Bert. Thank you, Ed. All right, see ya. Thank you for listening to Trust Company Talks. These opinions are intended as entertainment. Any opinions expressed on this podcast by Bill Noble, Burke Coons, or anyone else are not necessarily those of Trust Company of the South. There is no guarantee that these statements, opinions, or forecasts provided herein will prove to be accurate. Any information is not a complete summary or statement of all available data necessary for making an investment decision and does not constitute a recommendation. These materials are not intended to be tax or legal advice, and readers are encouraged to consult their own legal tax and investment advisor before implementing any financial strategy.